All right, let's go Ephesians chapter 2. If I can get the lights up, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room. Uh, we say this every week, but we say it for a reason. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have a copy of God's Word that you get to call yours, we invite you to take that physical one home. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of Him. Uh, and so if if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you get to call yours, take that one and uh, start reading it, and I'll call it the best part of my day. It's, it's even during VBS week. All right, so um, it is VBS week, and we've got lots of decorations up. We're getting everything ready. We're leaning into silly songs with even sillier motions, all those kinds of things that come with Vacation Bible School. And if you happen uh, to be on the outside looking in, Right. If you're if you're new to church life, if you're new to uh, at least the life of our church family, you may be starting to wonder if we've lost our ever loving minds. All right. And you're right. But that happened long before we way before VBS. OK, um, we have lost our minds. And, and well, but there's a reason for all the effort. There's a reason that we you know, put up the decorations and we sing the silly songs. There's a reason that we ask volunteers to give up a whole week of what could quite honestly be described as pretty exhausting work. And the reason is this. When you start adding everything up, there is no program ministry in the life of our church that bears anywhere near as much fruit as Vacation Bible School does. Not even close. It's miles ahead of every other thing that we say, oh yeah, this is a program that we want to invest in. It bears tons and tons of fruit. And, that, and that, that's a reality that many of you probably already understand, I'm guessing, because you've got a VBS somewhere in your own story, right? Whether, whether that was uh, the place that God actually called you to salvation. For some of you, it's a place where you were discipled well and learned the Bible and what it is and, and how God speaks to us through it. Some of you, even as adults, this was the very, uh, like a vacation Bible school was the very first place that you stepped in to start serving in some capacity. Tons of us have a vacation Bible school buried somewhere in our story. Yes, vacation Bible school is exhausting. And yeah, it's pretty expensive, but it's also incredibly worth it. Incredibly worth it. When done correctly, VBS bears fruit that pays off. It is a week-long effort that has the potential to forever change the hearts and lives of dozens of kids in our church and in our community. There are some things in this world that are quite worthy of losing our ever-loving minds for, and VBS is one of them. But here's the deal. Even with all this effort, even with all these people pouring in, there's, there's still a lot of people in this room right now where this is the entirety of Vacation Bible School that you're going to get this week. So, how does the how does the church that can't be here stay involved? Like, like some of you have real jobs. Like, we have to actually go to work. Blah. All right? First of all, I'm sorry. Like, your life's boring, but I, whatever. How can you participate? Well, I, I, think, I think the best way you can participate is to pray for what's going on here. And based on the eternal ramifications involved, that's not some lesser role. 
That's not some secondary status as a servant. I mean, think about it. If, if VBS really is as invaluable a week of evangelism and discipleship as we think it is, if it really does attempt to forever change the worldviews and the eternities of a bunch of little hearts and minds, then you can go ahead and also consider it a spiritual target, right? Like if what the Bible says is true, that we, we have an enemy, then things like VBS are in its crosshairs. Clearly so. So how can you pray well? Well, I want to try to spend our time this morning casting a big vision for what it is, uh, what, our, what our theme is going to be this week, and what our kids are going to be studying, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, and, and to help us uh, kind of understand the stakes involved, we've got to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. And if you're thinking, hey, didn't we study that same text last week? Yes, we did. Absolutely right. And in God's bigness, and in his sovereignty, and in his great love for us, the very text that showed us our one and only gospel foundation as a church last week is the exact text that we need to set up our grand plan for Vacation Bible School this week. Isn't God good? You may have noticed that we stopped short of verse 10 last week. We only read through verse 9. And guess what our theme verse for VBS is this year? Ephesians 2.10. We're going to look at it today. But before we get there, we've got to set the stage, right? You can't have verse 10 without the first, verse, first nine verses. So in order to understand verse 10 properly, we have to understand the context that it's sitting in. But now, now, I've got less work to do. All right? Which means, think about it, think about it. God just saved you from me having to go warp speed. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't have to do as much work. Just take a moment, take a quick moment and say thank you to Jesus. <laughs> Ready to do this? All right. The recap for that we need to lean on starts in verse 1. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right, let's call a time out there. All right, so we spent our time talking about all of this stuff last week. So if you want a longer version of the exegesis, go back and look at the sermon archives. They're there online. All right, but here's the real quick Stephen Woodard version of the summary. All right, the summary of what Paul just said. Speaking to Christians in a specific church, the Ephesian church, Paul says that despite their past separation from God because of their sin and rebellion, that God is rich in mercy. That even though by nature they deserved an inheritance of wrath and death, they instead were lavished with an inheritance of life that was earned for them by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul just said. Paul says that all those who are united with Christ not only get Jesus' stuff, which is a really great, awesome list, but far more than that, they get God himself. That the ultimate prize of the gospel is full and forever reconciliation with God, purchased for them, provided for them by God. They were far away, but now God has brought them near. That's what the first seven verses of Ephesians 2 tell us. So what changed? Well, God's action upon them is what changed. 
Those who by default were spiritually dead have now been brought to life. And verses 8 and 9 double down on that idea, double down on that reality. Look at it. He says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, so we said last week that the shift for the Ephesian church, for all the Christians in Ephesus, the shift between death and life was the moment of faith, believing that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and he's doing exactly what he said he would do. Right? That's what faith is. And faith is a word that gets maligned, I think, in a lot of the broader Christian subculture. It often gets tossed around as if it's nothing more than some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for a lot of folks. Right? It gets slapped down on the table, treated as a commodity the moment that you need something from God. But that's TBN kind of logic. The biblical idea of faith, the biblical definition of faith, is a placing of your trust in the promises of Jesus and his work as being sufficient to save you. That's what faith is. But uh, how, how exactly do hearts that are far from God, dead in sin and set in rebellion against Him, how do those hearts make a turn and then begin to love and pursue Him instead? Well, we see spelled out here by the Apostle Paul at the end of verse 8. Faith is not a, a man-initiated thing. The, the faith that leads to salvation, we're told, is just as much a gift as salvation itself is. Faith is not something we create. God must first give faith. And any reasoning person who's paying attention immediately has a thousand questions here, right? I, I think if we're honest, obviously we have questions. Most notably, like, why would God build out the economy of his salvation in such a way? Were you paying attention to that? I, I, like, think about it. Every ounce, according to Paul here, every ounce of what it takes to be reconciled to God must also be handed out by God. Like, seriously, does that sound fair to you? The answer is no, it's not fair. No one ever said it was supposed to be. It's charity. That's precisely why we call it grace. That's what the word grace means. Charity, an undeserved gift. But why, why does God do it that way? What's he aiming for in that? Well, Paul gives us an explicit answer concerning God's reasoning. He says, so that no one may boast, right? The truth is, and I know it's true for my heart, and I'm going to go ahead and assume it's true for your heart as well. The truth is that if we owned even a fraction of 1% of the responsibility for our salvation, we wouldn't hesitate to celebrate our fraction of 1%. I would. The Bible teaches that we are bent towards robbing glory from the one that it actually belongs to. And so because God will not share his glory with another, and because he is too good to let his people continue chasing after that, which will ultimately harm them, his economy of salvation requires that faith be a gift. Or else it all falls apart. And make no mistake, the good giver has seen fit to make sufficient provision. He has not left us hanging on that. He has given us everything we need. But that, but that was last week, right? We, we already talked about all that stuff. We, we got it locked down, right? So what in the world does any of this have to do with vacation Bible school? Well, verse 10 is where we find our answer. It's our theme verse for the week, so let's look at it. For we are his, what's that word? Workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so there's one massive truth that flows out of this one verse and a whole bunch of countless other smaller truths that we can infer. First up, the big one. Let's handle the big one first. Speaking to Christians in Ephesus, Paul just said that they cannot, under any circumstance at all, earn their way into a right standing with a holy God by, by either working to accomplish perfection under the, under the law or even by working to kind of garner up some faith in order to trust him. Before Jesus, they have neither the attitude nor the aptitude to accomplish any work-based goal to draw near to God. But listen, God has plenty to spare. They don't have what it takes to work their way in through any route, but God has every bit the right to work his way to us. He's good like that. He's got the character and the ability to pull it off. In fact, he is the master craftsman. That's a much bigger idea than probably what we all think on the surface. All throughout Ephesians so far, whenever the English word work has been used, it's translating a Greek word called ergon. Right? Um, it's a, if, you were, if you were here, we saw that word a few times throughout the book of Titus as well. Ergon means something that you are obliged to do. Something you are obliged to do. But that, that's not the word that we see here in the first part of verse 10. That's not what's, what Paul uses. He uses a different word. He uses the word poema. And if you've spent much time in church, you've likely come across some pastor somewhere telling you that that is where we get our English word for poetry from. Poema. Doesn't that just sound awesome? You were God's poetry. <laughs> I mean, that'll preach. <laughs> Who doesn't get fired up about being God's poetry? Well, dudes that probably don't like poetry probably don't get fired up about that. They're dead on the inside. Don't listen. Don't <laughs> No, no, it's true. Poema is the Greek root for our English word poetry. That's not an incorrect interpretation. Uh, and so it's, it's not uncommon at all. And you see it all over the place. It's not uncommon at all for preachers to, to, to kind of lean on that when they come to this text, when they're teaching this. Uh, but there are a couple of problems with uh, kind of emphasizing that we're God's poetry. All right? There's a couple of problems with that logic. One is that it has a general tendency to celebrate the poem rather than the poet. You see that? You're God's poetry. You know what's better than the poetry? The poet who wrote it. By every measure. It's, it's not automatic. It's not automatic at all. There, people have certainly managed to avoid that pitfall as they're teaching this, but the pathway is there. Uh, Well-intentioned or not, that's a dangerous place to live in. We want to we maybe not fall into that rut. But the second reason calling us God's poetry is problematic is because poetry is actually way too small a concept of what God's doing here. Poetry is not big enough to envelop all of what Paul is saying. Like it may sound like a pretty description, but what God is doing is actually much, much bigger than that. I, I remember having to write poems in, in like high school, in like school. Uh, it didn't go well. Did you have assignments like that? I had, I had assignments like that. Um, it, 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 it wasn't a good thing. And it wasn't because I didn't like the assignment. It wasn't because I'm not good with words and such. That, that kind of stuff kind of comes naturally for me. The truth is, I'm a really bad poet. Anybody else? Like, like I always overthought it. Tried to be far more eloquent and profound than I naturally am. And it, and it just, 
It's a big mess. Even, even now, today, if I ever try to wade back into that and, and pick those kinds of things back up, it still doesn't go well. I'm a bad poet. There's absolutely great poetry in the world. It's out there. I've had the privilege of reading a lot of it. Collect some of it. There's also mediocre poetry out there. And there's also really, really bad poetry out there. Calling something a poem um, does not automatically make it a good thing. And thankfully, that's not all that's going on in this Greek word. Poema might be the Greek root for English word poetry. That, that's true, but that's not at all how the word was used when Paul wrote it. Paul's not talking about poetry. Poema is a masterful piece of creation. A masterful piece of creation. A creation that flows from the craftsmanship of a creator intended to reflect the character of that creator. That's what poem is. There's a gigantic difference between writing a poem and pouring yourself out into the writing of a poem. We've all seen it, right? Poem is used exactly one other time in the New Testament. Only once. The other time is also by Paul he, when he uses it in the book of Romans. Romans 1.20, it says this, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, the poema, so they are without excuse. Now, in case you weren't here back in 2019 when we studied the book of Romans together, Paul's point in chapter 1 there is to say that the artistry of God and his creation cannot, cannot be mistaken for chance. In order for fallen man to observe what God has made without also getting a glimpse of who God is, that fallen man has to actively repress the knowledge of what is good, actively repress the testimony of the poema. He must go out of his way to reject what is clearly perceived and ascribe that creation to some other means. That's Paul's point in Romans 1. And so in Romans chapter 1, Paul holds up this truth and says that all men, therefore, are without excuse. There's no such thing as someone who stands innocent before God. Oh, but they don't, they don't have the law. How could they know? They have the poema. That's how. They have the creation. And the creation is enough to teach that God is there and he must be answered to. The poema is not enough to save them. They still need the scriptures. They still need to hear the gospel. But they're without excuse. Look around you. Open your eyes. The poema bears testimony that God is real. So when Paul whips that word out here in Ephesians 2, do you think he's changed what he means by it? Not in the least. He uses it to describe the unmistakable artistry of God's recreation provided through Christ. And just like creation, that recreation is also specifically meant to show off the character of the Creator. So how exactly do we show off his handiwork? Second half of the verse. By good works. This time, that word works, ergon. Something we are obliged to do. And all of a sudden, we're back into the logic of, of Titus 3 again, aren't we? 
We study that for a few weeks in a row. Those who are spiritually dead have been brought to life. Those who have, were, were postured as rebels against the good king are being and have been recreated. Those who could never work their way into salvation by either attitude nor aptitude because of the perfect work of God, that we are now set apart for works that flow freely from our new identities in Christ, reflecting Christ's character in us. But again, what... What does any of this have to do with a vacation Bible school theme? Like, like why we got a, a rainbow paintbrush on the back wall? <laughs> well, it's the dozen of smaller truths that flow out of this verse that we can begin to look at. We, we, we don't have time to point out every possible thing that we could draw out of Ephesians 2.10, but we can hold up and celebrate a few things of relevance this morning. Number one, if Christians being recreated are supposed to reflect the character of God, what kinds of things about him should we be reflecting? Have you ever considered the list? I mean, the obvious Sunday school answers would be things like his love, his grace, his mercy. Like, if we were to take a quick straw poll and ask for suggestions about things that we should reflect about the character of our Savior, like, those are the first three coming off of people. Yeah, his grace! But in the one other biblical example that we have of Poema, Paul didn't focus on those things. He said that creation reflected God's eternality and his power, his divine nature. I think it's pretty safe to add other things like his beauty, his creativity, his design, his foresight. Right? So how, do, how in the world do we try to show that list of things off? Well, through things like art. Which one? All of them. They all belong to him. They're his. He came up with their idea. They flow first from his creative mind. And like every other created thing, they have been handed to us for the purpose, the express purpose of making much of him. Right? This means that art, in whatever form you want to lean into it, it ought to point everyone else to something true about who God is. And like every other created thing, art is misused when it is leveraged in an attempt to try and exalt ourselves instead. But art that leaves us in awe of God and in the goodness of who He is, art that leaves us marveling at what He has done or is doing, that's good art. That's good art. Sometimes that statement is being made explicitly. Sometimes it's more implicit, but in both cases when that statement flows from a desire to reflect him and make much of him, what's happening in that moment is an extension of worship, right? We all kind of naturally get that when it comes to things like music. Like, it's easier to connect the dots on that kind of stuff. But it's just as true of the visual arts like painting and sculpting and drawing and all those kinds of things. It's just as true of, uh, of things that require planning and design like engineering and construction. It's just as true of, uh, of those who take raw materials and turn them into something that people can use. That's art too. It's also an extension of worship when it's used to exalt the king. When recreated Christians use those pathways to honor the Lord, they point others to his beauty. The poema, do good works, which act as clear markers to those on the outside looking in to know something about who God is. But, but what about non-Christians making art? Like, There's a lot of non-Christian artists out there, and some of their work's pretty good. 
Well, sometimes the Gentiles do what is right. Sometimes the Gentiles do what is right. And even in their separation from God, they sometimes still manage to point to something true about him. But then also, the, also sometimes their art proves that they're nothing more than an attempt to exalt themselves. That's also true. Those who have been recreated will see it for what it is. We can, we can navigate those waters with a spiritual wisdom that points to truth wherever it is found. And also, quite often in our fallen world, reject what is not true. We, we need to do both. Art is a tool, an incredibly wonderful tool. But art is a tool, and we can and should use it to make much of the Lord. But we can take a step beyond that this morning, because a failure to use those tools that God has given, uh, the things that he's given us to turn around and praise him with, that, the failure to use those is kind of a different problem, right? Like, like you, if, if you're the guy that says, like, nah, I don't need that, I, I, don't, I don't want to participate in that way, like, I think you're misunderstanding something about who God is. I think you're misunderstanding something about God. You're missing out on experiencing and then expressing part of his good character. That's a problem. So we're going to lean into that part of him this week. We're going to teach a bunch of kids that he's not just gracious and merciful and loving. He is absolutely those things, but he's also beautiful. He's also infinitely creative. He has also given us a thousand means and even a bunch that we haven't thought up yet in order to turn around and praise his name. We're going to show that off to a bunch of kids this week. Is there anything else we can learn from Ephesians 2.10? Yep. Second truth that we can draw is that the excellency of God's workmanship is never up for debate by either the ones being recreated nor by those who might claim an expertise on the outside looking in. What do I mean by that? I mean that you never have to prove yourself to anyone including yourself. The value of God's poema is never, has never, and will never be determined by those who don't have eyes to see it yet. What God declares to be valuable, it's valuable, period. Like, like other wannabe pretend authorities, they may try to say, no, 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 I reject that, no, 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 I disagree with that. Their opinion doesn't matter. What God declares to be valuable is valuable. And so when it comes to varying arts and creativity things, like you've always got whole categories of people in church life that, that, that tend to hold that stuff at arm's length and refuse to, to participate in those things, uh, mostly because uh, they see them as something that they could never do at a level of expertise, according to them. Like, like have you ever seen that? They can't sing very well, so they never sing. They can't draw very well. They're not the best artists, so they, they avoid helping even in the moments where we need to create something. The plan that they thought out had some flaws in it, and so the next time a plan is needed, they keep their mouth closed. Whole swaths of people in church life. Now, you want to peek behind the pastoral curtain for a second? A lot of a pastor's busy work, like a whole bunch of it, comes from trying to encourage people to step up to things they're obviously pretty good at, but they won't say yes because they don't feel like they're good enough. Happens all week long for me. Humility in the church is a non-negotiable. It's necessary in every healthy church, but a false humility in the church often gets us, gets in the way of the things that God is calling us to do. It's true. Oh, but I still can't sing. <laughs> That's why we'll never hand you a microphone. 
I still can't draw a straight line. You're absolutely right. And listen, not only will we never ask you to like lead out in the VBS decorations, but we'll hand you a ruler when we ask you to help the one who is in charge. You'll get your straight line anyways. You'll be okay. We're not aiming for excellence in these things. What we're aiming for is for other people to get a glimpse of God's goodness through all of these things. Those are different postures to pursue. And quite often, church, quite often, God is most glorified, not by our excellence, but by our weakness. Right? Master artists are a good gift to the church. Nobody doubts that. We can and will use their skills and their giftings to benefit church life. But the consistent testimony of the Bible paints the picture that God seems to take more delight in the guy who says, I just gave it what I had. I hope he uses it. Over and over and over again, that's the one God celebrates. Like, why would we celebrate the master artist when God celebrates someone else? Ephesians 2.10 helps us better understand God's purpose for creativity and art. It helps us better understand our participation in those activities. But there's another thing that we can point out this morning that will help us going into VBS week. It can also give us a confidence in the end goal of these ventures. Paul says that these good works are things that God prepared for us beforehand. Beforehand. This means that whenever we come across opportunities to reflect God's character through good works, uh, whether that be the arts or that be a thousand other things, whenever we come across those opportunities to reflect God's character, it's never, and I mean ever, an accident. It's not happenstance. They are God-ordained invitations. They are being used by him to involve you in what he is doing. To make his name more famous. Now, does that mean that all of our efforts will, will always pan out like we hope? No. Does that mean, in the case of an art-themed VBS, that all of our attempts at creativity will be flawless and work? Not a chance. No. But our job? Our job is to walk consistently with what he has put in front of us to walk in. That's our job. And church, this means that the pressure to succeed is actually never on you. It's not on you. Our job is to rest and enjoy all that comes with obedience to his good design. This is true of art stuff. This is true of evangelism. This is true of every other thing that we can imagine putting in the category of good works. Our job is to walk in what he has given us to walk in. In the same way that we are dependent upon God to work in us to recreate us, we are just as dependent upon him when it comes to any results uh, for what he calls us to do. Yes, we work diligently. Yes, our obedience includes preparing well and doing our very best. But results are God's job, not ours. The one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not looking for an army of perfectionists to accomplish his purposes in the world. That's not what he's called us to. He's calling you to trust and walk alongside him in what he is doing. Participate in the work that he is accomplishing. And so at Vacation Bible School this week, our kids are going to learn about how God is the good creator. The good creator. That the beauty of his creation flows out of the abundance of who he is. His spectacular character. They're going to learn not only that we can enjoy, but we ought to enjoy the good things that he has made. They're also going to learn this week that the apex of his creation are the ones that he made to bear his own image. And that he saves us 
That he recreates us to look more and more and more like him. So not only do we get to learn to love him and his creation more, but we also get to tell the rest of the world about the goodness and the beauty of who he is through things even like art and design and creativity. Those are tools that we get to use for accomplishing the Great Commission. Our aim this week is not to make a bunch of new little artists for the church. If that happens, awesome, but not what we're gunning for. Our aim this week is to help a bunch of little hearts and minds begin to understand that our God is bigger and lovelier and far more creative than they even could ever possibly imagine. That he is good and wants to show off his goodness to them to help them understand that his great love for them and the callings he's placed on their lives to know him and to be known by him and to share his message of great love with all those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. That's our aim this week. So that starts Monday. What do we do today? How do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you, you can respond to God's word this morning by meeting Jesus. All, all this talk about recreated Christians showing off the character of God, that's kind of pointless if you haven't been recreated. Math. Now, our, our default status is not as God's workmanship. It's our default status is those who are dead in our trespasses and sins because of our sin. Our posture of rebellion against God as Lord and King over our lives because of our sin. The Bible teaches that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. But the Bible also teaches right here in Ephesians 2 that despite what we are owed, that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that he is capable and willing of making dead men alive. How? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in what? Faith in who? That's the question, right? The eternal Son of God, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross as a, as a, a payment for your sin in your place. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. As the one who stands over as Lord and King, conqueror over sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. You can respond to Jesus in saving faith. But what, let it be helpful to you. In the moment we're going to pray and sing some more, some more. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to you. You can catch me after we're done here. Whatever it takes, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Help you figure out what that pathway of responding in faith looks like but what about those of us who are already followers of jesus how do, how do we respond to god's word this morning the same way we do every single week we repent of sin and we lean into what god is revealing about himself in the text and this week i think he's showing us that his plans for us are far bigger and far more beautiful than we tend to comprehend he's showing us that his plans for us are not some burden they're good they're good, and they actually produce more enjoyment, that, uh, an enjoyment that outstrips what the rest of the world has to offer. Our call is to rest in what he has done, even as we work to accurately reflect who he is. 
So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action to this, this thing that's uh, calling that's in your heart right now. Uh, flesh it out with some steps. All right. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe it's time to say yes to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to formally join our church family. Or maybe it's time, because uh, you've been hearing God's call to, for a while now, that he would have you go be Poema somewhere where Poema is seriously lacking and needs to be better represented. Maybe it's time to say yes to that publicly today. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond, let's all respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Ephesians 2. Thank you for being the master craftsman. You're a great poet, but you're far more than a poet. You are infinitely good, infinitely lovely, infinitely creative. And for those you call yours, you've given us a task, an ergon. Help us reflect you well. And we are insufficient in every measure. We, we do not have flawless, sinless creativity. Our beauty is, our idea of beauty is corrupted and and shallow. But as you change us to look more and more like you, would you help us see those things better and represent you in those things better and that all to point back to you is infinitely better than the art we produce. God, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Create some new workmanship today. Call people into your kingdom from death to life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.